Before we begin, let's again pause for a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful that you give us a new day. We know with each new day there is renewed grace and renewed mercy upon our lives. And we thank you that you do not leave us where we're at. And we just continue to pray that you will show us the areas of our lives that are not surrendered, that we're still hanging on to, that we're not willing to let go. And may you continue to work in such a way, Lord, that we come to the place, Father, where we do let go, where we allow you into every corner of our lives, to every aspect, Father, of our lives, to every closet that we have kept closed and that we want to keep closed. Lord Jesus, may your work in us continue, even when we resist your working. May you just, in your gentle way, continue to convict us, to show us, Lord, what you desire of us. Because we know, Father, that truly, your desire for us is to grow more into your image and character. Father, become more like you. We just want to bless you and thank you for your presence with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure most of you got some kind of notifications in the mail or on your phone reminding you that it's been quite a while since your last medical physical or checkup, your last dentist appointment, or something else that you should probably check out. But it seems like, with everything else, we don't heed a lot of these reminders until we actually run into problems and we're forced to make appointments to take care of the issues that arise. And uh, sadly, in a spiritual sense, we tend to do the same thing. We ignore the reminders until we're faced with some sort of crisis And then all of a sudden, we want to be more spiritual. We want to draw closer to Christ. We want his healing and his direction in our lives. And I guess then we make appointments, more appointments. So I think it's a good practice for followers of Christ to regularly examine our hearts, our inner lives, our character, and our lifestyle to see where we're presently at and also what our trajectory is. In Psalms 139, verses 23 to 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I've read this before, but... I like it. I think it's, it's well said. It goes like this. A Chinese philosopher once wrote, If the past has taught us anything, it is that every cause brings its effect. Every action has a consequence. We Chinese have a saying. If a man plants melons, he will reap melons. If he sows beans, he will reap beans. And this is true for everyone's life. Good begets good. 
and evil leads to evil. True enough, the sun shines on the saint and the sinner alike, and too often it seems that the wicked prosper. But we can say with certainty that with the individualists, with the nation, the flourishing of the wicked is an illusion. For unceasingly, life keeps books on us all. In the end, we are the sum total of our actions. Character cannot be counterfeited, nor can it be put on and cast off as if, as if it were a garment to meet the whim of the moment. Like the markings on wood, which are ingrained in the very heart of the tree, character requires time and nurturing for growth and development. Thus also, day by day, we write our own destiny, for inexorably, we become what we do. So we become what we do. And the finality of that is that one day, our true nature and heart will be revealed. Our thoughts, motives, words, and actions will be on trial before God. That is the final, unescapable reality that awaits all of us. And there we will stand, having our whole lives on review. Everything will be revealed and brought out into the open. There is another reality there that is final, and that is that the time of repentance is over. We see this in the parables that Jesus shared, the parables of Lazarus. He said, Lazarus and the rich man, that the hour of grace and mercy was past. No matter what the rich man said or how he pleaded. What oil we have in our lamps is what we will have. In John 5 verses 28 to 29 he says, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation. And we tend to think of that moment and ask the question, well, how serious will it actually be? You know, what will matter to God? Maybe God will overlook some things. Maybe some things are not such a big deal. And sometimes I consider my, when I, as I consider my own heart, my motives, I kind of feel like Belshazzar in the Old Testament. When God told him through Daniel that he has been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Like in Daniel 5, 27, says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Then he goes on in Daniel five seventeen to 23. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your words to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, 
and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. What struck me in this is that not only was he weighed in the balances and found wanting, but he did not humble his heart, though he knew all the record or the what his father had gone through. He had watched all of it. You continued in your pride. You did not learn from your father's lesson. And I guess my question is, how much do we know already? Maybe we sometimes get the idea that we're somehow different, that God will treat us differently, that we deserve to be treated differently. But I'm of the opinion that the more we know of the truths of God, the more accountable we'll be. Are we ignoring the Holy Spirit's conviction on our lives? Are we pushing off dealing with sins that God is clearly pointing out to us to correct, as he did with Belshazzar? (coughs) Remember, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And a brother recently said this, we often think of the goodness of God. And rightly so, as we just heard from from Jacob. But do we also think in the same way of the severity of God? What kind of God would he be if you allowed sin to go unpunished, if it has not been repented of? We have the tendency to justify our sins somewhat, especially if it is not as bad or heinous as what we see others doing or have done. We say, well, my sins are definitely not as bad as his or her sins. Very mild compared to that. For example, if someone, let's say someone steals $100,000, and I only steal $5, who sinned? I'm of the opinion that we both sinned. And if both don't repent, then both don't inherit the kingdom. In the same way, if I kill my brother physically or just hate him vehemently, who sinned? In 1 John 3.15, it says, Whosoever hated his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Killing someone outright or killing someone with a spirit of hatred. Unrepentant, they both have no eternal life abiding within themselves. 
I do believe that there is a difference in the severity and impact that sins have on us and on others. But we have to believe that the bottom line is, if ultimately, the bottom line is that ultimately, both end up in the same place. No matter how small or how big a sin was. Shouldn't we view all sins with that same mind? So a person that physically kills his brother or a person that hates his brother, in the end, they all end up in the same place. They have no eternal life abiding in them. I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that small sins of heart and mind are not as serious in the eyes of God as actually carrying out the deed. I think it's a tactic from the enemy that the enemy uses to get us to believe these lies. For the wages of sin is death, and it refers to all sin, whether in thought, in word, or act. And we can trick ourselves into believing that it's really the big sins we need to avoid, all the while ignoring the gray areas in our lives or the things in our lives that we feel are little and of no consequence. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 says, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that are swift to running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Most of these sins can be carried out and are usually carried out somewhat under the radar. And they are not sins that make a big impact right off the bat but in the long run, end up exactly at the same place. And yes, a lot of them, hands that shed innocent blood, are very clear, like a proud look, lying tongue, he that sows discord among the brethren. These can take... They're often hidden, and it takes quite a while for them to come out. I found this writing by Ray Stedman. Um, I felt he says it quite well. Men who rationalize sin. I do not hesitate to say that this is the commonest failure in Christian experience, to rationalize sin. In the first case being referred to, the man does not like what the light reveals, so he keeps himself too busy to ever see it. In the second case, the person says there is no need for the light because he says, I cannot sin. Therefore, I shall just go on living the Christian life as I see it, since there is an automatic something in me that keeps me from falling into sin. But in the third case, the person is saying, of course, I can sin as a Christian. I know this. I do need light. But when I stop to look at my life and examine myself, what I see is not sin. Weakness and failure, perhaps, but not sin. I may have to admit that I have been weak, but I have not sinned. 
Now that is what John means. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Essentially, this is an evasion of fact, an evasion of reality. It is the exercise of that terrible power of the human mind, which we call rationalization, the ability to clothe wrong so that it looks right and evil so that it looks good. Who of us has not experienced this? We can all be experts at it. We know well how to invent reasons to do what we want to do and invent equally valid-sounding reasons to avoid what we want to avoid, and all the time make it sound as though there is really nothing we can do about it. There are perfectly understandable circumstances that keep us from doing these things. That is rationalization. Someone handed me this week a comment by Richard DeHaan on the great electrical blackout in the New England states that occurred last year. Very few people realize that in England, a similar thing was occurring at the same time, but on a much more limited scale. The difference was that in the United States, we were calling it a power failure, and in England, they called it a power reduction. Well, it was a reduction, all right, all the way down to zero, but it illustrates the tendency we have, even in non-religious things, to tone down a word. We do that with the word sin. Many people really do not know what the word means, but all of us have an uncomfortable feeling about it. We know that it suggests something bad, and we do not like it to use when we do not like to use it about ourselves. So we have invented a lot of very fancy names for it. What the scripture would call sin, we call human frailty or bad tendencies, or simply weakness, or a hereditary fault. The fancier the name, the more we like it, because it sounds so much better than that simple, ugly three-letter word, sin. Thus, one way of saying, I have not sinned, is to rename it and call it by a much pleasanter name. It is just as if you went through an industrial cabinet, took out all the bottles of poison, and relabeled them perfume, hand lotion, etc., it does not change the character of the poison, but it does make it sound a lot better. The evil twist of our fallen natures is revealed in the fact that what others do we call sin, but when we do the same thing, we have a different name for it. Others have prejudices, we have convictions. Others are conceited, but we have self-respect. When another man is lazy, we say so, but when we do not, but when we do not want to do something, we say we are too busy. When someone else goes ahead and acts on his own, we say he is presumptuous. When we do the same thing, we have initiative. When someone else gets angry and blows up, we say he has lost his temper. But when we do that, we, merely, we are merely showing righteous indignation. And as long as we can find a nicer label, we never will treat a thing like the poison it is. Now we may chuckle at these things, but these are the reasons why we are as weak, why we are weak as Christians. As long as we laugh at them, we will never do anything about them. We say, oh, well, everyone does it. It's so common. Even the Christians at church all do it. As long as we take that attitude, we shall always be in the grip of evil. We will never treat these things as the poison they are, as long as we permit ourselves to paste on a label that says something different and call it perfume. 
Also, we will never understand why we still go around crippled and ailing and acting as though some poison were sapping the spiritual strength from our lives. Another way we do this is to excuse our sins. Because of the pressures of circumstances we are experiencing, we say it is nerves that causes us to speak impatiently to one another. We say it is tiredness, fatigue that makes us utter sharp words at home. We blame the pressures of work for losing our peace and making us worried, troubled, and harassed. We say it's our difficult neighbors, brothers or sisters, that make us resentful and bitter. If it were not for them, it could be such sweet, lovely, and kind people. So basically, we blame God a lot of times. We make him out to be a liar. When he's pointing things out in our lives, we point fingers at others. We point fingers at our circumstances. And we we relabel things. And we justify these things in our minds. It's your fault, God, not mine. These circumstances that you've allowed me to get involved and make it impossible for me to obey you. Therefore, you're to blame. I want to do it, you know my heart. You know that I really want to be what I ought to be, but because of these circumstances, I can't. So it's really your fault. So hopefully, we can look at these things in a more objective manner and be honest with us in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? So, here we are. God has redeemed, forgiven, and accepted us. But more than that, he has put his spirit inside us. He has given us a new heart, a new mind. We have spiritual eyes to see and a spiritual mind and heart to discern and understand the things of God. And he has also given us the power to overcome sin and Satan. But we still have our flesh to deal with. So I want to go through a few examinations of our heart. Some I will uh, expound on a little bit more and some are simply just questions. Moral tests. God speaks through people through the moral law. If we break these laws and excuse ourselves for doing so, the presence and guidance of God lose their reality in our lives. The freedom and radiance of the Christian life departs. We're beginning. First question is, am I considered a truthful person? Are there any conditions under which I will or do tell a lie? Can I be depended on to tell the truth, no matter what the cost? Yes or no? Don't excuse or explain. It's simply a yes or no answer. And in my work, can I be absolutely trusted in money matters? Can I be trusted in my work even when no one is looking over my shoulder to keep me accountable? Do I take liberties with time and resources 
that I do not allow my fellow workers to take as well? Do I place burdens on people that I myself am not willing to carry? Do I place burdens on people that I myself, I myself am not willing to carry? Honesty is a direct reflection of your inner character. Your actions are a reflection on your faith. And reflecting the truth in your actions is part of being a good witness. Luke 16.10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Can I be trusted with other people's reputations? Yes or no? Love protects in in relationships. Do we care about one another's reputation? Do we find joy in other people's misfortunes? Especially if we have something in our hearts against them. When we hear that someone sinned or or something happened to someone, do we secretly rejoice or do we weep over it? In Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4 it says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In his commentary on this one verse, Dr. Wearsby writes, What makes people laugh or weep is often an indication of character. People who laugh at others' mistakes or misfortunes are lacking either in culture or character or possibly both. Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger anger from him. Now this is speaking about our enemies. How much more should this be different if we see our brothers and sisters falling? I think it's exactly like it says here. Uh, or Nehemiah, which should happen in, like in Nehemiah 1.4. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I think it would be well if we would do this, or if we find ourselves doing this. Am I pure in my habits, in my thought life? in my motives, in my relations with the opposite sex, yes or no. The Bible shows us that once we were darkened in our understanding in Ephesians 4.18, we crafted alternative realities where God was not glorious, Christ not worthy, sin not damnable, and holiness not desired. Our minds, created to be like a garden of the Lord, became a field of thorns, a scorched land. But in Christ, God is reclaiming his garden. He's opening the doors and windows and letting the light back in. He has told us that one of the great tasks of the Christian life is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Pluck weeds and plant trees, gather rocks and plow fields, prune vines and build walls, purify your mind. The purifying of our mind happens in part as we learn to habitually set our minds in certain directions. 
As we turn our mind's eye from the worthless to the beautiful, from the defiled to the pure, from the false to the true, like all repentance, such turning is not a one-time work, but a daily one, an hourly one, even a moment-by-moment one. Nor is it easy. Changing our habits of thought is like carving new ruts in an old road. It will not happen spontaneously. And as we do set our minds in certain directions and make holy thinking a habit, the effect will be like gradually opening the curtains. Light and warmth from God of glory will come in. So it's a daily thing. It's often a moment thing of just guarding our minds, taking every thought captive. Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I guess like everything else, what we fill our minds with, that's what we're going to think about. It's not rocket science to me. If we're not in the Word, then how can we think about the Word? If we're not meditating on Christ throughout the day, then how is He supposed to to work or speak into our lives? Am I selfish in the demands I make on my family, my wife, children, my brothers and sisters? Am I badly balanced, full of moods, cold today and warm tomorrow? Do I indulge in nerves that spoil both my joy and the joy of those around me? And like I said uh, before, or I read, a lot of times we blame our circumstances for this. We blame what we have to face. We blame other people for making our lives hard. Do I indulge in nerves that spoil both my joy and the joy of those around me? I guess this one hits home when I think of my children and the impact that I have on them. How do my children see me? And sometimes I get to see how they view me. And I know this, it might be a little uh, childish, but I'll do it anyway. Father's Day cards. I have one that one of my children wrote to me. Uh, my daddy's name is Samuel Wallman. He is 36 years old. My daddy's job is grass mowing. His favorite food is faux soup, and his favorite treat is Ferrero Rokers. My dad's favorite color is blue, question mark. One thing that my that makes my daddy laugh is jokes. He doesn't laugh, he grins. And when we obey him, and fishing always makes him happy. Something daddy says a lot is, I'll see or go clean. If I could go anywhere with my daddy for the day, I would choose a store. One thing that daddy loves about me is, that one was left blank. One thing I love most about my daddy is he's really fun to spend time with. 
So through the eyes of a child, you got the facts. And uh, it just uh, sometimes hits you, well, there's room for improvement in that one. And I know it was just done in quickly in passing, but I just feel that in our families, in our children's lives, we want to leave behind something that's a little more, that has a little more substance. Something that children and those around us can take away with them as they journey through life. We say and we do things to those around us that we regret. That we regret. <clears throat> and the other day, I saw another life lesson. Maybe some of you have noticed it. The tree here in front of Richard and Josh's house. Uh, it's a pretty big tree. I would say it's probably about eight inches in diameter or ten. It's probably been there. I think the rings on it show it's around 13 years old or 14. And it broke in a windstorm here the other day. And uh, somewhere, you can see on the, on the tree, that somewhere in its earlier years, something happened where either a lawnmower or a weed eater or something else gashed the bottom of the tree. As it grew, it seemed like the wound never healed correctly. Over time, it started rotting from the outside in. And eventually, it weakened to the point, it weakened the inside to the point where it finally snapped in a windstorm. And it's kind of a lesson that I thought about. That what are we doing with the wounds? Believe me, if we ignore the wounds that we create in our children's lives, in our brothers' or sisters' or wives' lives, they will come back to haunt us. That wound was never correctly repaired. We were standing there looking at it and someone came up, or one of the brothers came up and said, well, if you would have done this at this time, it would have healed and it would never have, this would never have happened. But no one did the repairing. It never healed correctly. And now 14 years later, it's, it's broken. And I feel it was just such a good reminder of that, that's, uh, exactly how things can go in our lives. That it's so important to just be careful in how we treat our children, how we treat our brothers and sisters. Because those wounds, yes, the scars are there, but hopefully it will not happen what happened to the tree. Wounds can be, can heal. We all know that. So, going on. Am I unrestrained in small indulgences, letting myself become the slave of habits, however harmless they may appear to me? Am I unrestrained in my pleasures, the kind I enjoy without considering the effect they have on my soul or the effect they will have on my life in the long run? What am I living for? 
self, money, possessions, place, are my gifts at the disposal of human need of Christ working through me? Are they dedicated to the kingdom of God here on this earth? So let us put ourselves before ourselves and look at ourselves. The bravest moment of a person's life is the moment when he or she looks at themselves objectively, without wincing and without complaining. But self-examination which does not result in action is dangerous. What am I going to do about what I see? The action called for is repentance and surrender of ourselves to God. So it is good to go through these questions on a regular basis. There is no point in hiding anything or excusing it away. We cannot push issues under the rug and hope they will just go away. Because pretty soon, it's pretty obvious that there's quite a big bump under the rug. We want to deal with our issues here and now in this life. Our affections. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And a short story here is... A number of years ago, I spent a summer teaching in Mexico. Both my children went with me. To pass the time, as we drove, my three-year-old son, Larry, watched her license plates. The trip to Mexico netted him plates from 24 states. And while we were there, he saw four more. So when we started back, he was over halfway to having collected all 50. Our return trip was during the peak vacation season. And to top it off, we went through Yellowstone National Park, a license plate collector's paradise. By the morning of the second day there, he had just one more state to go, Delaware. Larry became, became obsessed with finding a license plate from Delaware. When, he stopped to see Yellowstone's, when we stopped to see Yellowstone's magnificent sights, he didn't glance at them. He preferred to run up and down the parking lots looking at license plates. You would have thought that his whole life depended on finding a Delaware license plate. When we stopped to eat in a cafeteria near Yellowstone Falls, my son begged me to let him look for license plates. Please, I don't want to eat, Larry said. Can't I just stay here in the parking lot? No, he told him, you have to eat. So he went inside, so he went, he went inside and ate as quickly as he could got the food down, and he headed out to the parking lot. No sooner had we finished our meal, however, than Larry came bounding across the parking lot. Come here, you've got to see it. You won't believe if you don't see it. All of us went running out, and there, just pulling out of the parking space, was a blue Volkswagen bus with Delaware license plates. In fact, we got a picture, and even today, a decade later, when we look at our Yellowstone pictures, that's the picture that tells more about what we did in Yellowstone than anything else. So affections. On the road to life, or on our road of, of life, you can definitely miss what God's work is for us to do. Like this boy, you can easily become distracted with other passions that take up the majority of our time and completely miss the whole point. Affections versus passions. 
Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great reformed theologian of the 18th century, is helpful when it comes to thinking how and why the, about the how and why of decisions. Edwards recognizes that human beings are driven by passions and that passions are often the source of our decision-making. For him, passions are the sudden instinctive responses that are informed by the mind. They are often the unthought-out knee-jerk reactions to situations. Passions. Affections, on the other hand, are controlled by the mind and operate powerfully to shape the decisions we make. Edwards describes them as vigorous inclinations by which we are either inclined toward or away from things. It is affections which spring from the mind that drive our choices. Affections, however, can be good or bad. Worldly affections are thought-out responses to situations and ideas that operate powerfully to incline our decisions away from the ways, purposes, and knowledge of God. Religious or holy affections are generated by the Spirit, who operates through our minds to invigorate godly inclinations that enable and cause us to choose the path of godliness. If this is so, then we humans make decisions either through being driven by, number one, our passions that pay no attention to the mind, or number two, worldly affections which disincline us to follow God, or religious affections, which come from a mind that has been impacted by the Holy Spirit so that our whole being is inclined to and seek to align itself to God and his revelation. So in order to grow in discernment, it is necessary for us to move from passion-based decisions to holy affections-based decision-making. We must grow in knowledge so that our decisions are based on religious affections, not on mere emotions. So, passions. Hopefully, we don't let passions rule our lives. Um, I often tell my children that, or I've told them before that, okay, they really come to me to see something in a magazine or see something in a store. And they run up to me and it's like the whole world depends on them getting this thing right now. It becomes their passion. They go home and they clip out stuff from magazines and paste them on their whatever. Their, the walls talk about it. And a good rule of thumb is I tell them that, okay, let's think about this for a week. And then after a week, if this is actually something you really want, then maybe we can go ahead with it. So passions should be out for us. And uh, our affections, the Bible teaches us that we, should, uh, that we should set our affections on things above. We should have this mindset that we go through our day being conscious of God and his presence and what he desires of us. Be conscious of speaking into other people's lives. Be conscious, like I said, of leaving behind something of substance. And people, it's, it's not hard to figure out, people know where our affections are, what our passions are. Our next, the next thing that I want to share is complacency 
and lukewarmness. One of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is complacency. Satan desires for Christians to just sit back and relax. Just think everything's good, everything's okay. There's no need to exert yourself this much over anything. You're doing okay. You're not as bad as other people are. But pretty soon we notice, and other people notice, that we're drifting off to sleep. Webster's definition of the word complacency is a feeling of being satisfied with how things are, not wanting to try to make them better. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness, are actual dangers or deficiencies. And this sounds like a very dangerous place to be if you're a Christian. And I think the Bible makes it clear that as Christians, we should never be standing still. We're either growing or maturing in the faith, and sometimes it does seem like it's going rather slowly. But if you look back at your life, hopefully we can see the progress. Second Peter verses one, or chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we are to seek Christ. And when we do, I believe he causes us victories. The danger comes when we begin to rely on our past victories rather than Christ. Complacency tempts us to remember our past laurels while we should be looking ahead to the next battle God wants us to win. So often we can experience the power of God in our lives and then assume because he acted like that in the past, he will always do the same in the future. We begin to feel comfortable in our faith in a bad way, complacent, when we think of the past and then no longer see God in the present or, or yeah, in the present. No matter who you are, no matter what God has done uh, through you, no matter what ministry you have been part of, you are only as powerful and useful as your current prayer life and devotion to Christ. For example, we think about King David. He did great things before his sin with Bathsheba. He was anointed by God. He won many victories. And he had been a great king to Israel, but none of that prevented him from committing adultery with her. And like 
You all know, we've heard stories of Christian leaders of some prestige having a moral failure or sinning, even renouncing the faith. The confusing thing about such situations is that even though these Christian leaders turn, they were also used in great ways by God to bring glory to himself. Thus, sin by such people negate all the good God did through them in the past? No, it does not. It does, however, prove that past pursuit of God will not sustain us through the present and future. And odds are that with these people's sins, you can pretty well guess that their prayer life failed and they became complacent and uh, in their devotion to Christ. We must see God always, continually, praying about everything at all times. Even after the prayers in our past were answered, after we experience something that God has done for us. Lukewarmness. Is it part of our lives? And when I think of lukewarmness, I sometimes think of the mower up in the shop, or one with the cab. And it does have an air conditioner. And sometimes when you're mowing, especially when it's hot outside, um, the, in- the engine heats up to the point where it kind of radiates through the back of the mower and it kind of heats up the seat. So you have the air conditioner blowing, but you also have the, the back part of the mower, which is, which is heating, it's heating your back. And it kind of puts you in a very uncomfortable position because I found it actually makes you kind of physically sick. You have one part of your body that's very warm and then the other part is trying to cool down and it's kind of in between and it makes you sick. Well, if you're, if you're just hot, you're uncomfortable and if you're very cold, you're also uncomfortable. But at least um, it just, for me... Uh, it's it's better to be one or the other. So it's kind of, for me, also a lesson. That lukewarmness, I think we all know, is something that God despises. And fakeness, and just living our lives with no vision, no direction, and just allowing our senses and our emotions to take the better of us. Am I a person who seeks after truth, or do I desire to seek after truth? I have something here by A.W. Tozer, but I think I'll I'll just skip it. Um, But there's one statement that he made here about truth. We people that seek after truth. He said here, he says here, what good is truth if it has no transforming element in my life? To embrace the truth is to embrace God himself. 
every truth is rooted in God. So in order to accept and experience truth, I must experience God in my life. And uh, I guess if we would have time, I would read it. But truth. Are we seeking after truth? And the truth in God's word. Do we desire to know more about God through his word? And it is indeed a challenge for me. I found that out recently again. That we're either desiring after God or we're not. And I think we will know if we do. Can I honestly say that I desire to know Christ in a deeper way? Do I actually want to know more about him? Do I want to know him intimately? And like Brother Trevor always says, just be honest. That's the best place to be, is just be honest, because that's the starting point. We can say to God, we can kneel down and say, Lord, the desire is not there. Please change it. And I guess I feel that's very true. It's very important. But I don't want to leave you hopeless. I believe that Christ is our biggest ally. He's our greatest friend. And he intercedes for us on our behalf. He is our greatest ally. He came to set us free. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says about Christ, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In verse 3, it says, To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is what Christ wants from us. He is willing to set us free. And there are no excuses. I feel that we either want it or we don't. Because there were people in the New Testament who cried after Christ without stopping until he took notice of them. There were some who even took a roof apart to let down a man so that Jesus could heal him. They were serious. They were sick of their lives. They wanted a change. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We either believe this or we don't. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And a short story in closing. When Harry Hayward, a brutal Minneapolis murderer who murdered a woman who had been kind to him in order to get a few dollars from her, stood upon the gallows and the trapdoor was about to fall. He made a funny speech and at the last 
jestingly twitched a rope about his neck and said to the sheriff, pull it tight, I stand pat. Stand pat means to leave something just as it is, without any change. So that's the tragedy of an unchanged heart and life. What an end. The Holy Spirit's convictions in our hearts and lives, what do we do with it? The choice is ours, and this is where the love of God truly comes in. He has given us free will to choose, so that at that final day, we will not be able to point fingers and blame God for our circumstances for or the people around us, or any other excuse that we have. God is always there, and is always willing to help us. So, thank you, and God bless you.